Yes, yes. Uh, morning, good morning. Sir. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Morning, morning Chairperson. Uh, it's 10 o'clock, uh, the dot. Morning, Chairperson. Uh, good morning, uh, Honorable Dango. How are you? I'm good, Chairperson. Uh, we are also good. We are also good, Honorable uh, Members. Yes, yes. Uh, good morning, Honorable the staff of uh, the committee, uh, staff of Parliament Communication uh, Unit, uh, our uh, guests uh, from uh, Trade Law Center. Uh, good morning, uh, everybody. Welcome back to the third term uh, of uh, the NCOP program. Uh, the whole month of July, we were on a constituency period. Uh, this is our first uh, uh, activity. Uh, we are opening uh, today the third term uh, of our program. Uh, we're starting with the workshop uh, on the World Trade Organization. Initially, we were supposed to be meeting with the department on their program too, uh, which deals with trade policy. Uh, but uh, we'll receive a letter uh, from the minister um, that they will be having a, a cabinet leholder uh, this week. Uh, so we had a discussion with the staff that uh, we should uh, then have a, a workshop on, on World Trade uh, Organization. We, 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 we had previously uh, agreed that... Uh, when we engage with departments, not performance plans, because they tend to be general plans that doesn't go into detail with regard to each program. Uh, we already started to uh, um, uh, see that uh, my network is uh, unstable. Uh, uh, we've just uh, been moved uh, We've just been moved to Acacia Park again. Uh, so it's the first time also that I'm logging in from uh, Acacia Park. Uh, we, we, the, <laughs> where we stay, we stay at uh, Laboria Park. They're going to be renovating the houses there. So temporarily, we've been moved to uh, some flats in Acacia Park. So I think I'm starting to experience it. Uh, connectivity problems. So I'm trying now to use my cell phone to hotspot. I hope uh, it will uh, work. Um, so I was uh, still indicating that uh, we have started with other programs uh, of the particularly DTIC uh, in terms of going uh, in detail to, to their programs. Uh, because we we noticed that uh, they just tend to uh, to just give us a, a highlights of their a, a program. For example, on on program two, uh, specifically with regard to the issue of uh, uh, WTO, 
All that they say is that uh, reports on SA engagement with the WTO, the G20, BRICS, and uh, they say number of reports setting out progress in the engagement in WTO, G20, and BRICS. And they say for this period from uh, 1st of April to the 31st of March, and then they will have uh, uh, eight reports. Uh, across those three international uh, organizations. But we don't get to to engage uh, with the, those reports. Those reports are just submitted to the to the to the minister uh, or to the ministry. Uh, otherwise as members of uh, the committee or parliament, we don't even know what is contained uh, in, in those reports of, of engagements. So we we then took a decision that uh, I'm just making an example about this specific program, but generally all the programs in the APPs of a department, they are just uh, statements of intent and then the details are dealt with uh, within the department. And that uh, leaves us only understanding the statement of intent and uh, all that uh, they will do then when... Uh, we meet with them uh, to report on the progress with regard to the annual report. They will indicate in terms of uh, the eight reports, whether they managed to get eight or seven or six or five, that's all. And then if they get uh, eight, then that's, uh, 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 that is an achievement. But uh, without us as members uh, knowing exactly what are the details of each of the eight pro- uh, reports, uh, that have been submitted. So um, what I'm trying to say, therefore, is that uh, we will also be engaging with uh, all the other departments that we uh, uh, oversight uh, so that uh, we deal with their individual programs in detail. Um, but for now, because uh, we're unable today to, to have a meeting with the department, we decided that we should uh, invite a trade law uh, center because also they deal with the, uh, these uh, international organizations around issues of trade. Um, uh, specifically on this one, it will be focusing on the uh, WTO, the World Trade Organization. Um, let me again uh, formally welcome uh, honorable members and also uh, pass words of uh, uh, sincere condolences uh, to Honorable Tongo, uh, whose sister, uh, the Deputy Secretary General of uh, the African National Congress, uh, passed away. Uh, we really want to send our deepest condolences to you, Honorable Tango, and uh, your family, the family of Tango, uh, Duarte, and Whitley. We really. Um, I think hope that God will be with you uh, during this uh, difficult period and comfort you. Uh, I see your hand is up, Honorable uh, Dango. Let me give you the platform. Uh, Chairperson, thank you very much for the condolences. It gives us strength uh, when people actually remember us and keep us in their prayers. However, let me take the opportunity of just taking something in after your remarks, Chairperson. Chairperson, it's, mm-hmm. it's good that we're listening to the, the WTO at the moment. But I think we should also be looking 
as all different agreements because I'm deployed to the AU, EU, Pacific and Caribbean. And at times, what they bring there from the EU particularly is agreements that have been not been agreed to at the AU. And the AU is our primary um, focus and our primary uh, organ that we are affiliated to. So I think those kind of contradictions, we, we have to monitor somehow, but I think it will slip through the, uh, the, the processes at one point or another. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Gang. Um, actually, with the well, with sorry, with the trade uh, policy, uh, we will also deal. We're not only dealing with the WTO, but uh, we will continue from time to time uh, deal with all the uh, bodies uh, or organization that uh, uh, South, South Africa engages with. Uh, yeah. Um, let me give the opportunity to uh, Ms. Grace Denizel to indicate uh, uh, the attendance and apologies if there are any. Thank you, Chairperson. Good morning to honorable members. We received two apologies from honorable Mamarehane and honorable Boshoff, plus the one that is a, a standing one for honorable Lens. Lensman. And in attendance, we have Honorable Dango, Honorable Moimang, Honorable Chai, Honorable Lont, Honorable Matevula, Honorable Apleni. We also have the delegation uh, from Trelec, Professor Gerhard Erasmus, Professor Trudy Hudson-Beck, and we also have the officials from the DTIC. Thank you, Chairperson. Thank you so much. Um, let me then uh, welcome uh, all uh, those participants on this platform. And also, I wish uh, everyone in this workshop uh, uh, to participate uh, and uh, was our specific focus, as I was indicating, that is on uh, WTO. We would also like to extend our special thanks to uh, Ms. Trudy hudson uh, It's not the first time that uh, she's attended our workshop. We had a workshop on the African uh, free uh, continental free trade uh, area uh, that uh, she took us through, uh, I think, last year. Um, so we really appreciate that uh, at a short notice she was able to agree uh, uh, to to come. We also extend uh, our special thanks to Professor Farad uh, Rasmus uh, from uh, also Trade Law, Law Center. Um, we appreciate uh, your support to the work of the committee and in order to fully uh, uh, fully exercise our consideration. including broader civil society, uh, this uh, needs to be uh, cemented. Uh, so from time to time, we call on you to uh, also, uh, uh, from time to time, to assist us uh, to unpack 
uh, particularly these areas of uh, uh, world trade policy. Uh, it is not the first time, as I indicated, that uh, you've accepted our uh, invitation uh, without any hesitation. Um, let me, as we did uh, perhaps last time, just to remind the uh, members on the profiles, uh, particularly of the two uh, uh, attendants. Let me start with the uh, uh, Ms. Trudy Hasenberg uh, is the executive director uh, of Tralac. Uh, she has a special interest in trade-related uh, capacity building. Uh, her research area includes uh, trade policy issues, uh, regional integration, and investment in industrial and competition policy. Uh, and then Professor Erasmus is a founder of Tralac and a professor in TAS, a law faculty at the University of Stellenbosch. He holds a degree, uh, holds degrees uh, from the University of Free State, Bloemfontein, Illuris LLP, uh, Leiden in the Netherlands, uh, LLT, and a master's uh, from Fletcher School of Law and diplomacy. He has consulted for governments, the private sector, and regional organizations in Southern Africa. He has also been involved in the drafting of the South African and Namibian constitutions. He grew up in Namibia. Honorable uh, members, all participants, uh, the mission of Tralac is to build a trade governance capacity in Africa, uh, supporting trade and regional integration for just and sustainable development outcomes at national, regional, and continental uh, and multilateral uh, levels. I think it is in this context that the institution has accepted our invitation with uh, no uh, hesitancy. Uh, at this stage, I will hand over to uh, Professor Gerald and uh, uh, Erasmus and uh, Mr. D. Azenbeck. Uh, we are at your hands. Uh, over to you. Thank you very much. Honorable Chair, Honorable Members, colleagues from the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition, it's a pleasure to be with you again this morning. It's been a long time. It feels like since we last met, so it's good to meet again. We're very pleased to receive the request, and um, initially the request, as you will recall, was to share with you an update on the outcomes of the recent ministerial conference, which took place in June. And since then, a few other issues have been added to the agenda. May I please ask the host to enable screen sharing for me? Then we'll be able to begin. And Professor Rasmus, good to be with you here as well. Thank you. Enrico, can you share the presentation, please? Uh, yeah, muted, uh, Professor. Sorry for that. I was just announcing my presence and um, recognizing the chair and all the members. Uh, to, we have prepared a PowerPoint presentation, and Trudy will take us through that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Colleagues, if you could have put, on, put it on full screen for us, or otherwise I'm able to share on my side as well if you permit us to do that. Honourable Members, this was the initial brief. If we go to the next slide, please, that will give us the outline of what we will be discussing this morning. We understand that this briefing and opportunity to discuss the outcomes, particularly of MC12, as it is known, the 12th Ministerial Conference, of the World Trade Organization is particularly important in view of meetings, upcoming meetings with the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition. Honorable members, we'll start with a brief overview, therefore, of the World Trade Organization. This is just to situate our discussion today in the institutional, legal, institutional architecture and context of the World Trade Organization. We have also been provided with a number of specific questions, which we understand honorable members are asking. And so we have listed those and we will discuss those. And we hope that you will engage actively with us in this discussion today. Following that, we will look at the MC12 outcomes and some of the implications of those outcomes. Next slide, please. Honorable members, this we're starting right at the beginning. The World Trade Organization is the International Trade Governance Organization. This is where the member states of the WTO and South Africa, of course, being a founder member of both its precursor, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and the World Trade Organization, which was established on the 1st of January 1995, negotiate trade agreements. These enter into force and then are applied. The main function is to ensure that trade flows predictably, smoothly, and with progressive liberalization over time. There are a number of agreements that we are still negotiating as members of the WTO. Very important to keep in mind, it is a member-driven organization. The Secretariat is based in Geneva, and of course, recently, our representatives would have been in Geneva for the ministerial conference, the highest decision-making body of the WTO. Next slide, please. At the moment, as we've indicated, there are 164 members of the WTO and a group of countries, including 13 African countries, that are in the process of negotiating their accession to the WTO. At present, some 98% of global trade is accounted for by the existing membership. Decisions are made by the members of the WTO. Those are the sovereign states that have joined the WTO. Decisions are taken by consensus. 
There are possibilities for majority decisions, but very rare that this happens. And then the WTO agreements um, are ratified in members' parliament in the member states' parliaments. But I'll ask Professor Erasmus to say something about that. Please go ahead. Yeah, thank you, Trudy. Honorable members, honorable chair, the um, WTO is an international organization. It has an international legal status and it uh, uh, consists of, uh, from a legal technical point of view, a collection of legal instruments. There is the Marrakesh Agreement, the founding agreement, and then there are agreements for trade in goods, trade in services, the intellectual property uh, right aspects of, in, of international trade. Recording and in progress. For dispute settlement. There are a number of detailed agreements called the covered agreements for matters ranging from um, technical standards, trade remedies, um, procedures for um, uh, customs administration. There are legal arrangements for shipment, pre-shipment inspection, and for a whole range of, of matters. The interesting feature of the WTO is that it is a so-called single undertaking. If a country is a member of the WTO, that country is automatically party to all the agreements in the sense of being entitled to the rights and benefits, and it is also bound by all the obligations. Now, the basic philosophy behind the WTO is to provide for liberalized trade in goods and services in a non-discriminatory manner with certainty and predictability. It is a so-called rules-based system. Now, one of the questions that um, we have um, been given to address um, deals with the implications Recording of, stopped. Deals with the implications of for sovereignty of being a member of the WTO. Now, let me say that South Africa, and as a matter of fact, all these 164 member states of the WTO have become members of the WTO by exercising their right to ascend, to become members, to ratify those agreements and to become members. Some members joined later, later subsequently through accession. But I want to emphasize that um, joining an international organization such as this one brings... Recording in progress brings important implications in terms of complying with obligations, but at the same time being entitled to expect that all the other states must do the same. That is the certainty and the predictability. And it applies to, to all members from the biggest to the smallest. So it is an act of sovereignty, as a matter of fact, for states to decide to become a party to 
any trade arrangement, not only the WTO. So if we are negotiating the African continental free trade area or bilateral trade agreements with the European Union and whatever the case may be, we, we always have to face this implication. Uh, are we prepared to accept the obligations? If we are, there are international and domestic procedures uh, uh, that we must go through. Internationally, we speak about the ratification of an international agreement. Before we in South Africa, before the Republic of South Africa ratifies an international agreement, uh, there is a procedure in the Constitution to comply with uh, uh, involving, involving Parliament and the, consent and the uh, and, uh, decision by Parliament to support that policy choice. And after that, an instrument of ratification will be adopted. So let me just say that the WTO is a, um, a, a multilateral trade liberalization organization. Uh, it has been very successful in terms of, of um, making trade in commercial goods, in industrial goods freer over time since after the Second World War. There is, however, on the other hand, criticism that the WTO is not always sufficiently accommodating of the needs of developing countries. And there's still a lot to be done in this respect. The majority of the membership of the WTO, in fact, consists of developing countries. And we will come back to this point. But it is the only multilateral organization and the reason for trade, trade in goods and services, and the reason why uh, it is noteworthy to look at why it is useful to look at the, at the results of MC12, the ministerial conference that ended in, in, in June this year, is because it deals with all the topical new issues in the world, in the world of trade and new technological developments. The WTO is, however, not responsible ultimately for what happens and what doesn't happen uh, in, in regard to new obligations being ex uh, accepted and new agreements being concluded. The reason a supranational body that can decide, like a parliament can, for the subjects down there to do certain things. These international obligations can only become binding and can become obligations of the member states if they accept them. It, acceptance um, is important to emphasize. Decisions are taken on the basis of consensus. And we will note a little bit later that there is this new agreement on fishery subsidies. And it took many, many years to come to the point where that text could be accepted. So what are the implications of um, WTO membership for sovereignty? Well, there are far ranging implications, but that applies to each and every member state of the WTO. But new obligations will not become binding 
unless accepted by the member states. It is a member-driven organization. Let's stop there, Trudy. Next slide, please. Colleagues, as Professor Rasmus has indicated, this is the structure of the various decision-making bodies of the World Trade Organization with, at the apex, the ministerial conference. It usually meets every two years. However, as a result of COVID, there have been postponements. And so the most recent meeting was in June in Geneva this year. The General Council, keep in mind that the membership of the bodies is, of course, reflective of the membership of the WTO. And there are various bodies that have specific tasks that have been delineated. The General Council is just below the Ministerial Conference in terms of the hierarchy of decision-making. Then we have, as he's indicated, the Council for Trade and Goods for Trade and Services, the TRIPS Council. There's also a Trade Negotiations Committee, and this is particularly important um, in terms of monitoring also the activities of the WTO member states um, as they report their negotiations to conclude regional trade agreements and so on. But there are also trade policy reviews which take place periodically. And this is to promote transparency. It's not a policing activity at all. But these reports, colleagues, and we can highly recommend the trade policy reviews if one really wants to understand the trade policy, trade policy choices, trade policy instruments that a WTO member applies and uses, the agreements to which it belongs. And this is a very, very useful document. They are all available on the WTO website. Professor Rasmus, anything else here, perhaps with respect to dispute settlement that we could note at this point of the conversation? Yeah, dispute settlement is um, um, opportune. It is an important matter to note. As I've said, the, uh, um, the WTO legal construct includes the principle of a single undertaking. As far as dispute settlement is concerned, if member A is of the view that member B has violated any of its commitments uh, in any of these covered agreements, then it can invoke the dispute settlement system. Now, the dispute settlement system consists of stages and, 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 and different institutions. The first stage is um, consultations. That country that wants to, to, to invoke the a dispute settlement understanding, as it is called, it will notify the dispute settlement body, which consists of the whole membership wearing another hat, and it must first enter into consultations with um, uh, that responding state. If the consultations 
result in a in a in a settlement of the issue, uh, then it's the end of the story. But it's not uh, um, simply a, a gentleman's agreement, so to speak, between the parties. It is then it then becomes a formal decision by the dispute settlement body. So dispute settlement in the form of consultations is is a serious matter. Uh, it is. It has the same binding effect and quality of a final decision. If the consultations are not successful, then we um, can have um, um, the appointment of a of a panel to investigate the matter and bring out the report. If the report is acceptable to both parties, then that is confirmed by a decision of the dispute settlement body, or otherwise there can be an appeal to the appellate body. But ultimately, the buck stops there, and those decisions, those final binding judgments are accepted by the um, dispute settlement body, by the membership, unless there is consensus not to accept it. That never happens. This is a unique feature of the of the WTO, there is uh, a built-in mechanism towards finality in dispute settlement. In most other arrangements, um, historically at least, uh, international courts had to rely on the consent of the parties in order to exercise jurisdiction over them. I want to make two observations now about um, the benefits of this type of system that we have in the WTO. The first one is that in the negotiations for a dispute settlement arrangement for the AFCFTA, we in Africa decided to copy the WTO. So our protocol on dispute settlement, which was already concluded in round one of the AFC in the AFCFTA negotiations is modeled on the WTO. Only the states, the state parties have, have, have standing there, uh, but it goes through the same procedures of consultations, uh, um, panel, panel um, investigations, panel reports, and then an appellate body. We have added some uh, adjustments or qualifications here and there. And one of them is about the, uh, the composition of the appellate body. In the WTO, there is a crisis at the moment because there is no appellate body. And the reason why there is no appellate body has to do with certain actions that the former American president has taken in refusing to participate in the announcements uh, in the in the mem- in the in the selection of members of of the appellate body, we have uh, fine tuned our use of the uh, dispute settlement recipe of uh, the WTO to make that sort of impasse impossible. The last thing to say about this dispute settlement system is. Over the past week, as a matter of fact, at the end of last week, South Africa, the South African government made history, um, I think because it is the first time that that type of dispute was declared. We formally declared a dispute in the WTO uh, against the European Union 
on issues related to the exportation of South African citrus to the um, to the um, European Union. Now, it is interesting to note that the citrus, the comp- truly can tell us a little bit more about the nature of the complaint or what brought us to, to this point. But the European Union and South Africa and other members of SACU, Southern African Customs Union, and Mozambique are trading with each other under a preferential trade arrangement, the SADC-EU Economic Partnership Agreement. And uh, it's a favorable deal. It provides in principle for quota-free, duty-free access to those big and important markets. But the European Union is of the opinion that we in South Africa, that the citrus products that we export uh, are not uh, sufficiently free of of the danger of of contamination and pestilence associated, therefore. Maybe, Trudy, you can tell us a little bit more about what the... um, uh, 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 this dispute between South Africa and and the EU is about. What I want to, to, to emphasize now is we have, despite the fact that the trade itself in this particular product is conducted by a bilateral free trade uh, 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 agreement, uh, decided not to go for the for the um, dispute settlement mechanism of that economic partnership agreement, which is international arbitration. But we decided to invoke the dispute settlement mechanism of the WTO. That is permissible in this case to do so. I saw the announcement in the American press uh, late last week on this part on this development as as groundbreaking in nature, as as an important um, breakthrough and a new decision of the South African government, which which indeed it is. But maybe, Tri, you can put this a little bit more in context for us so that we also emphasize one of the important benefits of the dispute settlement mechanism that we have in the WTO. There will be no uncertainty or no loss of time because time is of the essence now. Some of these consignments have already departed from from South South African territory. So it is very important that there is legal certainty as soon as possible. And these procedures are available in the WTO. So uh, we have taken a very important trade policy-related decision and involved a a procedure now where there won't be a loss of time because there will be a denial on the part of of the EU of uh, the jurisdiction of the WTO dispute settlement system. As a matter of fact, it will bring benefits to all. The sooner there will be certainty as to whether the EU measures are lawful because states are entitled to protect their own national interests, including uh, animal and plant life. But Trudy, can you just put this in a a bigger context for us? Why is this such an important development? 
Thanks very much, Professor Rasmus. Honorable members, in recent years, the export of citrus by South Africa has become an important success story. And I think we have noted that our exports to many, many destinations have increased quite significantly. Exports to the European Union um, have encountered other challenges besides the one which we are focusing on here before. And you will recall discussion, I'm quite sure, with our colleagues from DTIC about citrus black spot, which is a cosmetic marking on the peel of an orange, for example. It has no health risks or dangers associated with it. So there is some background and context which we need to take into account. On the 27th of July, um, we see in the notification from the delegation of South Africa, our ambassador in, in Geneva, um, who indicated that a dispute, a request for consultations, which is the first stage in the dispute settlement process in the WTO, had been requested with the European Union. And it concerns the export of citrus fruit by South Africa. The particular WTO agreement that is at issue here is the sanitary and phytosanitary measures agreement, the SPS agreement, which is extremely important. It codifies rules and regulations which have a legitimate public policy objective of protecting in this case in particular. So what the dispute that has been notified concerns is the introduction by the European Union of a regulation. And they are saying this concerns what is called false coddling moth that you may find in, in certain fruits and in citrus as well. And the regulation that they have now implemented and require compliance with in order to get access to the European Union markets is cooling. So a cooling process of, of the citrus fruit, there's various stages that are required, pre-cooling and cool treatment, which is required before the products can actually enter the European Union market. And I think, colleagues, this is extremely important to keep in mind. Um, I think as Professor Erasmus has indicated, the, the agreement which we trade with the European Union, the preferential trade agreement that governs treatment between South Africa and five other SADC member states with the European Union, the SADC Economic Partnership Agreement has been a very important one. It took us a long time to negotiate it. However, in this case, the dispute is being lodged in terms of a WTO agreement. This is permissible in terms of the SADC-EU EPA. So now the first stage will take place, consultations between the two parties. And it is quite notable, and Professor Rasmus may be able to give us some indications here of the many disputes that, that are lodged with the WTO. Many of them are resolved at the consultation phase.
Professor Rasmus, perhaps you want to say something about that in this context. What do we expect to see now in terms of the unfolding of the process? The formal notification has been submitted to South Africa, a formal request for consultations has been tabled. What happens now? Yeah, I personally think it's unlikely that there will be uh, a settlement of this matter through the through the consultation process. The reason, um, well, I might be wrong, and that would be good news, but this is such an important matter, I think, for the EU in terms of making sure that its uh, SPS regime, that the uh, uh, sanitary and phytosanitary governance over imported fresh fruits and products, um, that that is compatible with the multilateral system. Uh, a lot of work and energy have gone into, into um, these um, uh, investigations and uh, there are international scientific standards that must be complied with when these um, uh, phytosanitary SPS uh, limitations are, are involved. South Africa is actually arguing that in this case, <clears throat> the uh, required scientific basis is not there. So the stakes are high. And then, of course, it is about the interest of a very important uh, domestic South African agricultural sector. If the parties, if the unexpected happens and they do agree uh, uh, in the, in the, in the uh, consultation phase, then the matter ends there. But it is important to emphasize that consultations as part of a declared dispute uh, leads to a, bind, uh, a final and binding settlement. It is not uh, um, simply uh, an ad hoc uh, informal agreement between the parties concerned. There are examples where it does happen from time to time, but it doesn't seem to me as if uh, this case will fall into, into that category. Let's wait and see, but uh, this has been a very important recent development. And it is a demonstration of the usefulness of having an international rules-based trading system, which is rules-based, which is a single undertaking, and which provides for final and, 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 and binding solutions to disputes. So let's, let's watch these developments around the dispute between the EU and South Africa on, on the export of citrus products. Thanks very much, Professor Rasmus. Colleagues, the reference that Professor Rasmus has made to scientific evidence is particularly important because with significant tariff liberalization over the years, very often it is issues such as SBS or technical barriers to trade, which are often particularly important when we are trading industrial goods that can be become effective barriers to trade. 
So the tariff may not be a very high obstacle in many cases when it comes to exports, but it is possible that SBS and technical barriers to trade issues may be used for protectionist purposes. And hence, the central role of the scientific evidence to prove that there is a significant risk if products that do not comply with the requirements are imported into a domestic market. That's quite important. Next slide, please. I think we can skip through this one. This is just a reminder of all the member Sorry. states of the WTO and the ones marked in yellow, which you would have seen in a flash. Honorable members, those are the ones that are negotiating access to the WTO. It is notable that there are quite a number on the African continent from this total 25 that are negotiating accession to the WTO. Next slide, please. The WTO agreements, I think, Professor Rasmus, you've covered these quite significantly already. I think just a reminder that the negotiations usually honourable members take place in so-called rounds and they are often called um, the Uruguay round or the Tokyo round depending on the location for those negotiations. Most recently in November 2001, the so-called Doha round of negotiations was launched. This has not yet been completed and this is where the issues around the interests of the developing countries remain a particularly important um, agenda item. Since then, of course, some negotiations have continued, as Professor Rasmus has indicated, the fisheries subsidies negotiations, which actually predate 2001, have been a particularly long and rather difficult set of negotiations. There are still some outstanding issues, and we will have a look at some of those when we take a look at the MC12 outcomes. I think we can skip to the next one, Professor Rasmus, unless there is something to add here. I think, um, honourable members, what we have in the next few slides are basically what we have covered so far. The um, Marrakesh Agreement establishing the World Trade Organization, 1st of January 1995. This is where the multilateral trade governance system got an institutional anchor established um, at the the WTO Secretariat in Geneva, and some of you may well have visited the Secretariat, and coming up fairly soon is the WTO Forum, a broad forum involving also non-state actors to discuss the trade policy issues of the day and concerns which draws wide participation. Next slide, Professor Asmus, if there are any issues to be added. Let's have a look at those. Anything on the GATS, the General Agreement on Trade and Services? Yeah, Trudy, you are the um, trade and services expert between the two of us. And you must tell us 
why it is so important that international trade was conducted for all and regulated for all practical purpose from immediately after the Second World War till the end of 1994. The multilateral trade regime consisted of the general agreement on tariffs and trade. It regulated trade in goods only. Then we saw the addition, the expansion of these international commitments in the form of um, an agreement or what, what is called the general agreement on trade in services, the GATS, this thing here, and um, the dispute settlement understanding and the, and the uh, 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 TRIPS or, or trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights part. So why is, maybe you can tell us, why it was this development to include rules on the conduct of trade in services so important. And what has happened since 1995? Where do we stand now? Are we again at a watershed moment in international trade regulation? Because there have been massive new technological developments. And the question I'm really asking, do we have in the, in the form of the WTO, an international forum that allows its members to deal with the technological challenges of the day. Some of these commitments go back to 1948. Others have been added in the middle of 1990s. Where do we stand at the moment? So I've got two requests to you. What is trade in services about? How is it regulated? And do we have in the forum available in the format of the WTO something, a, a useful instrumentality to deal with the new challenges of the day? Thanks, Professor Asmus. Honorable members, in recent decades, we have seen the role of services and trade and services grow in significance. Services play a very important role in all aspects of economic activity. But various technological developments, for example, have made it possible for us to supply services across borders without the movement of either the services supplier or the services user. And what we are doing today, although this is not an international trade engagement at all, there's no border, international border separating Professor Erasmus and I. In fact, I'm in Cape Town, he's in Stellenbosch, and our honorable members may be at different locations. It is possible to have this kind of supply of services by digital means. So digitally enabled trade and more recently, digitally delivered services. You and I possibly sometimes are streaming movies. And um, this is a digitally delivered service, as is the use of software, for example, that we have on all of our computers. Those are digitally delivered service services. 
So services are also an integral contributor to trade facilitation for goods, where transport services, financial services, communication services are all required to facilitate international trade in goods. This recognition and the growth of this body of cross-border trade and services prompted the members at that point of the GATT to put trade and services onto the agenda for the Uruguay round of negotiations. That was the round of negotiations that began in 1987, lasted for approximately seven years, and it introduced new disciplines to the global trade governance agenda, which went beyond the GATT, the General Agreement, to include services, aspects, trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights, and also to introduce um, the dispute settlement understanding that we have just been speaking about. If we take a look at what we are doing, honorable members, in the African continental free trade area, we also have a trade and services negotiations agenda. And we are following a very similar formula to what has been adopted in the WTO. We refer to it as a positive list approach. And a positive list approach means that the negotiating parties identify particular services that they would like to liberalize. And it could be financial services which includes, of course, also commercial banking, insurance, asset management, new fintech and um, financial services enabled by technology and so on, could be telecommunication services, could be transport services, which would include various subsectors such as road transport, maritime transport, and so on. So, in the case of the AFCFDA, we have five priority services sectors, finance, communication, transport, tourism, and professional or business services. Now, in the General Agreement on Trade and Services, South Africa elected to be quite progressive in its services liberalization. So we made extensive commitments for opening our trade and services sectors under the GATS. And the commitments that we made are in our schedules. So just as we have schedules of commitments for trade and goods, where we have commitments in terms of our tariffs, use of the import tariff, we have bound our tariffs so we've indicated the highest level of duties that we will use without engaging in further negotiations to raise those rates. The same applies in the case of trade and services. We have certain commitments which we implement for all the services sectors that we have committed in the WTO. We are doing the same currently in the African continental free trade area for the five priority services sectors. However, as Professor Erasmus has indicated, this is an incredibly dynamic 
broad sector of all of our economies. And if we look at the composition of economic activity, the services sectors, all of them together, account for, in some cases, two-thirds of our economic activity and even more in a particular year. So they are undeniably important in terms of employment creation, in terms of attracting foreign direct investment, contribution to GDP, and so on, but also importantly in terms of facilitating trade. They are regulatory intensive, and I think this is extremely important. So in recent years, we've seen a lot of new regulations being developed reformed, adopted for many of our services sectors. The broad discussion about digital trade and the subcomponent e-commerce is really important to keep in mind as well. And as we have all experienced during the COVID pandemic, we've seen certainly an uptick in digital trade and e-commerce um, and more generally in, in trade and, and services. So in the context of the World Trade Organization, a group of countries, those that have common interests in the area um, are discussing, and we'll come back to this when we look at the MC12 update, to discussing an e-commerce agenda. Now, this goes back all the way to 1998 when a work program on e-commerce and many other issues were also adopted. Not all the WTO members participate in those discussions of these new generation issues, we might call them for trade and services, but it is notable, honorable members, that in the, the AFCFDA, we are all participating in the negotiations on a protocol on digital trade. Initially, that protocol covered e-commerce only, and it has since by agreement of the, the state parties that are negotiating the AFCFDA and the non-state parties that are also participating in those negotiations been expanded to an agenda on digital trade. Some of the issues on that agenda relate to key aspects of governance, such as those related to protection of personal information, cybersecurity, data protection, data localization, where will the data that is generated when you and I, for example, use an e-commerce platform, where is the data stored? Who has access to it? So there's a broad range of important regulatory and legislative developments around data governance, which are particularly important. And in South Africa, we've made quite a lot of progress in this area in recent years. So I think in summary, what we can say about the trade and services agenda, it's, it's a very fast developing agenda in response to market technological and broader economic developments. And that's particularly important to keep in mind because if we have governance gaps so that our regulations and our trade agreements leave open space 
for traders to take advantage of without due oversight and governance, then we may not achieve the development outcomes that we should expect trade increases in trade, and in this case, trade in services and also digital trade to achieve. Next slide, please. Professor Erasmus, would you like to say anything else here about the TRIPS agreement, or should we wait until we have a look at the MC12 update where some of these issues are on the agenda? Over to you. Yeah, just let, let's just um, give the basic principle. Intellectual property rights, like patents, copyright, trademarks, and so on, they've been regulated internationally for over 100 years through different arrangements and different international um, agreements. What we have seen with the uh, establishment of the WTO is that those aspects of intellectual property rights, of patents, of trademarks, of geographical indications, and so on, that are related to, to particular goods and products, they need to be taken care of, so to speak, when goods um, for which we have such intellectual property rights are then being traded. So what the TRIPS agreement of the WTO does is to establish obligations on the members to protect those intellectual property rights of intellectual property owners when in the context of international trade in goods, but also in services, uh, they need that type of protection. What has happened since that time is uh, that we have uh, seen new developments and new needs, and in particular, uh, also uh, uh, as a result of the COVID pandemic, when um, waivers, a waiver was requested in respect of certain patents over medicines, over medical procedures and, 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 and products, uh, so that they could, the medicines could be manufactured um, on the basis of a waiver being granted. We will come back to this particular aspect. So what we are noting here is that with the establishment of the WTO, we saw an expansion of the substantive disciplines, not only to cover trade in goods, but also trade in services and the intellectual property rights um, uh, related to trade in goods and services. There have been very important technological developments subsequently and further refinements. So this is also an ongoing, the ongoing uh, debate. I want to make the point again that one of the practical benefits of the WTO is that it provides a platform to all its member states to be informed by the, uh, about the measures that members take in respect of uh, their obligations. So if the EU takes uh, a measure in the form of a 
SPS requirement for, for citrus, then everyone is informed about that measure. There's an obligation to notify the WTO. So this, the availability of a multilateral platform based on respect for obligations to notify measures taken impacting on obligations, that has many practical benefits. And one of those benefits is to to stay abreast of new developments and to, as we have already discovered this morning, to put all those new issues on the agenda and to keep them on the agenda. So we will, in the context of the discussion of the results of MC12, come back to this. But maybe at this point, Trudy, we must uh, pause for a minute and and just ask about whether uh, there are specific questions and contributions or whether we are having all the discussion at the end of our presentation. That's a very good idea. I just want to underscore the point that that you've mentioned, Professor Erasmus, and that is that intellectual property rights protection is extremely important also in the context of trade and services. Services trademarks, for example, are extremely important. And we're encountering this again also in the context of our own negotiations under the African continental free trade area, where, for example, some countries in terms of their domestic IP regimes do not make provision for services trademarks. So a services company, services provider such as Trellac, we have had this experience that we cannot protect our trademark in some African countries because their legal, their IP legal regimes do not provide for that. So as trade and services grows, this becomes increasingly important to be able to secure such protection. I see we have we have one hand, but I'm going to leave um, the management of the questions to our host in case we don't in case we miss anyone out, um, colleagues, could okay. you please identify them for us? So, Honourable Chair, thank you for your assistance on this one. All right. No, no thanks very much. Uh, perhaps uh, I will agree with you and uh, Professor Rasmus. Uh, that at this stage, uh, perhaps we can, before we go to the MC12, uh, outcomes. Perhaps we deal with the, the 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 aspects that you've already touched on uh, the the agreements uh, uh, on trade and goods uh, agreement on 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 trading services uh, the agreement on trade related uh, aspects of uh, intellectual property and the issue of uh, uh, dispute settlement. Yeah, so perhaps if uh, if members have uh, questions around uh, those three, I mean, those areas uh, that uh, result from the Marrakesh agreement, and then uh, after we've exhausted them questions around these areas, uh, we we can then allow uh, 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 Tralak to take us through then the outcomes of uh, uh, MC12. 
Uh, I see hand of uh, Honorable uh, Dango, uh, followed by Honorable uh, Muimak. In that order, please. Thank you very much, Chairperson. Can you yes, loud and clear. The African uh, Free Trade Agreement is on our agreements on the most favored nation agreements that you've entered into with other countries. Does this extend to the to the African Union and to African countries? Does it not extend to there? And what would that impact be there? Secondly, Chairperson, the question of arbitration and the Paris uh, organ that sits there in, in Paris, uh, what, how is that now impacting upon the new agreements? Uh, thank you very much, Chairperson. I, I think I'm covered with those two. Thank you so much. Uh, Honorable uh, Moima. Thank you, thank, thank, thank you, Chair. Just uh, uh, one point from my side. Uh, uh, let me welcome the presentation uh, thus far. The, it uh, uh, clarifies a number of issues uh, as it pertains to uh, where we stand as a, as a country in relation to the, the World Trade Organization. Uh, it, it was indicated during the presentation that uh, South Africa is a, is a founder, is a founder member member uh, state uh, to World Trade Organization. And uh, I just want to get clarity around the uh, the point that, uh, that, 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 that has uh, consistently been raised around how South Africa is, is categorized in the World Trade Organization as a developing or as a developed country. Uh, but we have to take into account the fact that uh, there will be uh, many benefits uh, that developing countries in the World Trade Organization will, 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 be, will, will uh, derive. Whether that matter has been sorted has been sorted out. Uh, <clears throat> the, the, the second point relates to to uh, the point that that, that, that is raised around uh, uh, South Africa making a commitment uh, to to uh, open its services uh, in. Uh, uh, it says that uh, South Africa has an extensive commitment to open our services, uh, uh, which to, to a large extent, uh, a, a, an issue has been raised uh, around this commitment that was made in, in, in uh, 1995, uh, which uh, unfortunately, the uh, point has been raised around uh, uh, allowing uh, other countries to dump their product uh, on our shore, uh, whether it emanates from uh, America dumping its uh, chicken thighs uh, on our country or uh, uh, opening the floodgates for, for China to dump its, uh, its goods on our, on our shore. Uh, whether is this uh, as a result of the 
a commitment that we made to to uh, remove uh, those tariff barriers. Thank you, Chair. Let me pause there. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Member. Uh, just just from me out, I just want to first find out uh, the the role of uh, Parliament uh, uh, with regard to WTO, um, the the negotiations that are taking place, uh, whether it be uh, with regard to uh, uh, agreement on trade in goods. Uh, agreement in, in in intellectual property, uh, 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 let's say uh, trips, uh, and also agreement on trading services. Whether there is any role for for Parliament with regard to to those uh, uh, negotiations, um, then the the second issue would uh, then relate to also on the. Because um, there the, the are areas that are listed with regard to uh, uh, trade in, 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 in services. Um, I, I just want to find out uh, to uh, now that uh, South Africa has uh, uh, agreed to open uh, uh, for or to foreign competition around the issues of. Uh, Banks, insurance firms, telecommunication companies, tour operators, hotel chains, and transport companies. Um, as, an, as an example on, on trading services, whether do we, are there any South Africans then that uh, are doing the same uh, outside South Africa that are, are allowed to operate uh, these uh, uh, services uh, in, in other countries? In, in as per the rules uh, then that govern the general agreement on trading services um on on dispute settlement i, I just want to know uh, the the dispute that was lodged by south africa uh, given that um, at the time the uk was part of the eu uh, how now that the uh, uk is out of the eu how is it then affected by the dispute that was lodged by South Africa? Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Honourable Chair and Honourable Members for those. Um, I'm going to start off with a few responses and then hand over to Professor Erasmus to, to address some of the others as well. Um, I think the question by Honorable Dango about the African continental free trade area, extremely important to note that in the context of the WTO agreements, both on trade in goods and on trade in services, what we might call a realistic approach is adopted in the sense that they allow so the WTO rules allow us to conclude preferential trading arrangements with smaller groups of trade partners and not extend the preferences and the special treatment that we accord one another to all of the WTO membership. 
So in the case of trade in goods, Article 24 of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and for services, Article 5 of the General Agreement on Trade and Services explicitly permit that we can conclude regional trade agreements such as the AFCFDA. And I think this is extremely important because literally in the last 25, 30 years, we've seen such a proliferation of those kind of regional trade agreements. So, for example, South Africa is a party to the SADC Protocol on Trade, Protocol on Trade in Goods, that is. And recently, of course, the Protocol on Trade in Services has entered into force for, for those SADC member states that are participating. South Africa also belongs to SACU, Southern African Customs Union, which predates the establishment of the WTO and the GATT. Also, we've had reference to the SADC EU Economic Partnership Agreement that we've concluded. And following Brexit, we have also concluded an economic partnership agreement with the United Kingdom. There are ongoing negotiations, for example, with India. And we also have an agreement with the Mercosur group of countries. So um, I think this is part of the overall landscape of trade governance. We have the WTO. This is where we negotiate multilateral trade agreements and non-discrimination principles are foundational to those agreements. But then for specifically important trade partnerships, we do negotiate regional trade agreements, usually in the form of a free trade area, which is what the African continental free trade area is. But sometimes we may go further and establish a customs union, as, for example, our colleagues in the East African community have done, or in West Africa in the case of ECOWAS. So I think that's quite important to keep in mind. The issue around the liberalization um, that we are required to negotiate in these regional trade agreements for trade in goods, we must liberalize substantially all trade in goods. And so this is an important requirement. We see it play out in the AFCFDA with the level of ambition that we will liberalize tariffs on 90% of tariff lines. So the duties on 90% of tariff lines will, once we have fully implemented the AFCFDA, be reduced to zero. For trade in services, that Article 5 of the GATS, the General Agreement on Trade and Services, requires that we have substantial sectoral coverage. Now, in the AFCFDA, we have five priority services sectors, but in total, in terms of the WTO classification, and that we are following, there are 12 services sectors. So over time, it is possible for South Africa, for example, to request that we add to the agenda or that partners open, for example, to South Africa's distribution services, which are not currently on that agenda. 
So in time, we will expand so that we cover substantially um, all sectors in, in services. And I think that's quite important to, to keep in mind. Um, I can selectively just answer with respect to, to services, for example, and whether, in fact, South Africa's services providers, our service companies, so to speak, have invested in other companies or are supplying services in other, com in other countries um, as a result of services liberalization. And the answer is definitely yes. While we've opened, and if you and I walk down um, any of our towns or cities, we may well see that there are foreign banks or services providers that have established a commercial presence with the purpose of providing services to us. Um, it could be in telecommunications also. It could be in a range of other services sectors, insurance companies, and so on. South African services companies, even if we just look across the African continent, so we take a look at, for example, MTN, which is well represented. Our banks, for example, Standard Bank, Nedbank, APSA more recently, and others are well represented across the continent and further afield as well. Now, one thing, honorable members, that we must keep in mind when it comes to trade and services is that we can trade in different modes of cross-border supply. So as we've indicated this morning, I can sit in Cape Town and offer a course to trade officials in Nigeria. I'm not traveling to Nigeria. They're not traveling to Cape Town. That is referred to as cross-border supply. So it's digitally enabled supply. There is a second mode, and this is a very important one, and this is where the services users or consumers travel across a border. And they come and consume services here. Perhaps the best example I can provide there is tourism. And very, very pleased to see that tourism is picking up again after the pandemic so that foreign tourists are coming to South Africa to consume those services so that we're able to export those tourism services, which is exactly what we would like to see increasing. The third mode of supply, which in terms of value of trade and services is the largest by far, is the establishment of commercial presence. It's effectively foreign direct investment, where some years ago, I think as we all recall, MTN invested in Nigeria. It established commercial presence in order to supply mobile telephony services and related value-added services to customers in Nigeria. Now, at that point, when continental free trade area. And so the South African company would have gone to Nigeria and engaged with the regulatory bodies, which at that point included also the Central Bank of Nigeria, which played an important role in such transactions. And it would have had to apply for a license. This is a manifestation of the regulatory intensity of trade and services. 
it would have had to apply and be awarded a license to be able to establish that business and supply those telephony services to Nigerian customers. So this, I think, is so important. We see, for example, South African banks established in a number of other countries, but they have to meet the domestic regulatory requirements. And what is interesting, even if a country has not made commitments to open its services sector, we may still find that it is possible for it to be able to establish commercial presence. And let me give you a practical example. Tanzania is a member of the World Trade Organization. It made GATS commitments only in one sector, in the tourism sector, for four and five star hotels to be established by foreign investors. But if one walks down the streets of Dar es Salaam, Dodoma, or any town in Tanzania, we will see there are foreign banks, there are foreign telecommunication services suppliers as well. So ultimately, what is particularly important is the regulatory intensity of, of services. And in the case of Tanzania, when the investors, for example, from Standard Bank or NetBank came to request to establish a commercial presence, the regulatory authorities and possibly the ministry, Ministry of Trade, but also most likely the Ministry of Communications would have been involved in the decision to grant that market access. So in this case, honorable members, trade in services behaves a little bit differently from trade in goods. The final mode of supply for trade in services is where the services supplier travels across a border to supply services. So we've seen in South Africa during COVID that doctors and medical professionals from Cuba were coming to supply services when we ran into, into challenges in terms of our capacity. That is mode for supply. Usually there are many domestic regulations which govern that kind of service supply. For example, we would need a mutual recognition agreement with the country of origin for those experts so that we recognize the medical qualifications of the doctors. They need to be registered professionals, have the requisite experience. Then they can travel, travel and come and supply services here. The same would apply if we have um, accountants or architects um, or construction engineers then again, there would have to be mutual recognition. This is so important because there are legitimate public policy um, rules why this makes absolute sense if we are going to have foreign services suppliers come into our country. And that's why the domestic regulations and the regulatory bodies, the professional bodies, play such an important role in facilitating that kind of trade in services. Professor Asmus, I'm going to hand over to you. There are some questions around 
um, trade remedy issues, dumping of, of, of products, for example, South Africa's classification within the WTO. We note, of course, that, that, um, that this is by self-selection. So that there's no one at the WTO saying this is a developing country or not. We do not use the UN classification um, across the board consistently in the trade context. So that's quite important to keep in mind. And then we'll come back to dispute settlement and the role of parliament. Over to you. Yeah, thank you, Trudy. And these are very important and interesting questions. Um, let's start with, uh, with, the, with the first ones. I hope it is clear now that it is quite uh, acceptable and it is, as a matter of fact, happening all the time, that countries can belong to more than one regional preferential trade agreement. Uh, there was the, the question about what is the relationship between the AFC, FTA, WTO, and all the other agreements. The AFC, FTA itself says that nothing prevents the state parties from maintaining or concluding new trade agreements with third parties. As Turi has pointed out now, the AFC-FTA is actually a preferential trade arrangement uh, that will grant benefits, preferences, only to African states. It's an African continental free trade area agreement. So it is quite compatible with the WTO. We have notified it there, or we will have to notify it there, but the um, uh, continuation of uh, existing third-party agreements and even the uh, conclusion of new ones is, um, is, is um, acceptable. It is confirmed in, in the EFC-FTA itself. But there's also a very other practical reason. Less than 20% of the goods that we produce on the African continent are exported to African destinations. It means that more than 80% of our trade in goods alone is global trade. We need to trade with the rest of the world. We cannot consume the goods that we produce on the continent all on our own. As a matter of fact, that would be uh, a counterproductive move if we would want to exclude trade with the rest of the world. That's the one thing. Uh, and as I've said, the AFC-FTA agreement explicitly says, if one looks at, for example, Article 4 of the Protocol on Trade in Goods in the AFC-FTA, there we will find a confirmation of that. We can come back to, to, to these aspects of the AFC-FTA as well, if need be. There was also a question about uh, arbitration. Now, I think what has, uh, what what we can say about arbitration is that uh, international arbitration between states, between states, is a long-standing um, uh, acceptable form of dispute settlement between states. States can refer their disputes to the International Court of Justice. They can refer their disputes to specialized courts that they have created, let's say, for trade or for uh, the law of the sea. Or they can say, okay, in this particular instance, we want to settle our dispute through arbitration. 
And arbitration in that format is also a form of adjudication. The parties must agree beforehand that the um, arbitration process will lead to a final and binding result. And um, the the typical selection of the arbitrators uh, takes place when the one party to the dispute nominates uh, one uh, arbitrator, uh, the other party, the second one, and those two then um, select the third one. So there's an uneven number. But in addition to arbitration as an interstate dispute settlement mechanism, we have uh, um, um, structures, uh, international structures um, uh, for commercial arbitration. Uh, some of them are um, in, 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 in London and in New York and in other areas of of or capitals of Europe. So they are also an, another form of international commercial arbitration where private parties can be involved. And then for um, recent, over the recent years, we saw arbitration uh, also in the form of dispute settlement when it is about inter, international investment treaties. So these other forms of arbitration um, will continue for those countries that uh, and, and those um, uh, users that will want to use them. But I want to point out that there's an interesting development uh, on the agenda as far as investment is concerned. In the second round of AFCFTA negotiations, we are going to see the adoption of a protocol on on uh, on investment, and that protocol will, as they do, deal with attracting investment, promoting investment, facilitating investment, and um, protecting the rights of investors, invest in, uh, in investments, and of the host states. And what is not yet quite clear is what we will decide under the AFC-FTA context on the settlement of investments, investor state disputes. Uh, we are seeing clear evidence on the continent that there is a preference for moving away from international arbitration where an investor can directly sue a state and invest uh, in 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 in, in uh, uh, host co- a country uh, when there's a dispute about the treatment of an investment or a investor, so it's a very um, correct point to make that there are uh, all sorts of um, ongoing developments in the context of of uh, of uh, arbitration. And the most interesting one, I think, where the AFC FTA will make a contribution together with other, it's not, it's important to note that this debate about investor state dispute settlement has been on the agenda for at least the last 10 years or so, and not only on the African continent, but also elsewhere. So I cannot uh, predict what exactly will happen on um, investor state dispute settlement. Uh, but um, the indications are that 
there will be a move away from international arbitration in that context. Uh, Tuli, let's make sure that we have all the other questions covered. There was a question about what about um, the inclusion of the United Kingdom in this recent dispute that we have a week ago declared as the Republic of South Africa against the European Union uh, regarding the uh, exportation of citrus from South Africa to the, to the, to the EU. Now, it is quite right, Honorable Chair, as you are pointing out, uh, that at the time when the um, uh, SADC-EU economic partnership was concluded that the United Kingdom was still part of the EU. Subsequently, they, they had Brexit, they left the, the, the EU, but uh, they, the, the um, United Kingdom did subsequently negotiate uh, its own economic partnership agreement with us, and with us, I mean South Africa, uh, Botswana, Namibia, Lesotho, Eswatini, uh, and, and, and Mozambique. So we are continuing that preferential trade under a separate agreement, basically, basically saying the same thing. But as far as this dispute is concerned, um, the UK is, is, is not a party. The dispute was declared a week ago. Uh, it's, it's, it's a dispute between uh, South Africa and, and the EU. And only those two parties are involved as, as parties to this dispute. Then there was a question about the dumping of goods. Um, yeah, the, the commitments that we have undertaken in respect of trade in services they do not relate to the dumping of goods. Dumping of goods is a matter that is dealt with under the GATT, the General Agreement of Tariffs of Trade. And it is indeed true that um, goods can be dumped and, uh, in the markets of other countries, and that is considered under the rules of the WTO an unfair trade practice. The WTO has an anti-dumping agreement. The WTO has agreement countervailing measures, and it has an agreement dealing with uh, safeguards. Uh, there is a whole body of law and of discipline and principles and examples, uh, what is uh, called trade remedies and safeguards. And the WTO takes note of these developments. To summarize um, a rather detailed field, um, if dumping, what is dumping? Dumping is not something that is committed by a state, by a government. Dumping occurs when a firm in country A sells its goods in the market of country B at prices below normal value. Now, that practice is, first of all, a practice by a firm. Secondly, it is considered to be uh, unfair because it can be detrimental. It can, it can harm the domestic uh, industry uh, doing business in respect of the same goods. And the anti-dumping agreement of the WTO allows a government now to investigate complaints about dumping 
and uh, to allow that affected uh, country to take uh, measures in the form of anti-dumping duties, extra duties on goods being dumped. But before you can do so, you must be able to show that there was dumping, that the dumping um, caused uh, material injury or threatened to cause material injury to the domestic industry. And thirdly, uh, that uh, the um, injury is caused by the dumping, not by something external like the drought. So if those three elements are present and have been shown to exist through the investigation, then anti-dumping duties can be imposed. We in South Africa have an active tradition and practice around anti-dumping. Uh, it is the responsibility of ITAC, the International Trade Administration Commission, in Pretoria to investigate such complaints. So you're quite right. <clears throat> dumping is possible, but dumping is not a state, a government activity. It's a private activity. And what the WTO anti-dumping agreement allows states then to do is to investigate such instances and to take protective measures. But I think we are well covered in this country in terms of the domestic laws and procedures to do so. We are, in fact, together with Egypt, the only country on the continent that is actively using uh, um, domestic uh, uh, trade remedy and safeguard procedures and, and, and uh, investigations. Uh, I think that is the, that completes my little list that I've drawn up here. Uh, and just to, to, to uh, confirm what Trudy has said about the developing country status of South Africa that goes back to the time of the start of the WTO. Yes, indeed, it is, it is a matter that has been around for some time since that time uh, because South Africa selected to be, um, to be a, a, a founding member of the, of the WTO as a um, as a developed country, and since then there had been second thoughts uh, about that decision. Uh, and I know that this matter is is mentioned from time to time again. Uh, I'm not the right person. This is a political issue to ask uh, uh, where that development stands. Uh, um, when next time you have a um, delegation from the ministry with you, they will um, be able to tell you more about that. Finally, uh, uh, Honourable Chair, you um, indicated, uh, if I understand you correctly, uh, that you want to say something, want to discuss something about the, uh, the involvement of parliament in, in, um, in, 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 trade, international trade negotiations and discussions and policies and developments. Now, generally speaking, this African constitution provides for an oversight function of, um, of parliament, that's parliament generally, um, uh, with respect to, uh, to, to what the executive does. Now, parliament performs its, 
its 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 oversight function under separation of powers rules uh, through its legislative powers, uh, budgetary powers, and so on, but also in terms of uh, a political oversight of what the executive does, one can say. Um, so yes, the the legislature is entitled under the constitution to be informed uh, as to what these uh, developments are and what um, uh, the various ministries uh, are planning to do in terms of of um, being involved in new negotiations. And it's not only the uh, uh, the Department of Trade and Industry and uh, uh, DTIC. Uh, uh, that that uh, will play a role here, but it is the lead ministry for for uh, for trade policy issues and, uh, and trade negotiations. So I can only state the principle that it is that 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 Parliament has uh, an oversight function, and the role commentators will will uh, will confirm that. And uh, a, uh, an executive. Um, being aware of of this uh, cohabitation, so to speak, with the legislature, I think will 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 honour it and will, from time to time, um, put it put the legislature in a position uh, that uh, the necessary um, um, information will be required, will be provided, and that discussions uh, will take place. Uh, when the design of our constitution is to is to uh, provide for a system of oversight, checks and balances, to some extent, if you would like to call it that, uh, and uh, my impression is that that practice is uh, is is uh, well, they, these principles are confirmed in practice as well. Um, is there anything that we might have missed? Or have we covered all the questions? Otherwise, uh, if we have covered them, we can go on to deal more specifically with what we were supposed to do today, and that is the uh, the MC12 outcome. But um, may I just say, Honourable Chair, um, Parliament is is entitled um, to, to 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 be informed and to obtain the information. Uh, as to the topics that 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 we are discussing today, through its own um, 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 request and effort, but also, obviously, it can ultimately only do so through the active process, uh, the involvement of the executive branch of government as well. No, thank you very much. Uh, I, I was uh, specifically relating to the the, the, the three areas: uh, uh, trade uh, in goods, uh, trade in services, and uh, the trips. Whether uh, if there are agreements around those issues, uh, then is the uh, executive obliged to bring those uh, for ratification by? A, a, a parliament. But also you have uh, responded that DTIC uh, uh, is not the only uh, department or ministry that deals 
uh, with uh, uh, WTO, or, but also it could be that it forms part of uh, international relations and cooperation. Maybe the committee that deals then with uh, international relations and cooperation uh, may be uh, the one that uh, these are brought to their attention. Uh, but I also want to correct myself. I thought that I had, I, I thought that uh, the the dispute that was lodged by South Africa was lodged a long time ago, while uh, UK was still part of EU. Uh, uh, you have explained that it was uh, recently launched. Uh, so I just wanted to correct myself there. Uh, I'm aware that, uh, uh, in fact, as the committee, we also um, uh, ratified and uh, recommended to the NCOP plenary session uh, the ratification of the that agreement between uh, the Southern African countries, including Mozambique and the UK. It's called SACUM. Uh, that was uh, ratified by a committee, I, I think, uh, in 19, sorry, 2019. And then it was taken to uh, to the NCOP uh, uh, for final uh, ratification. Yeah, Jay, uh, you are. You are you're, uh, it's good that you are reminding me of the of the focus on on uh, on the ratification. There is a separate procedure in Section two thirty one of the Constitution yeah. dealing with um, international agreements as part of the law of the land. All international agreements, not only those dealing with trade, but yeah. it basically says that international agreements will become binding on South Africa uh, once ratified, and ratification requires um, uh, approval by Parliament. So you're quite right uh, to point out that there's a distinction to be drawn between ratification of international uh, uh, agreements, new international agreements, a new international agreement like the AFC-FTA. The AFC-FTA text also came before before Parliament under Section 231 of the Constitution. But many of these new developments, uh, such as the outcome under MC-12, they do not result automatically in new new obligations. And that's another reason why it will be a good thing to to look at this new uh, fishing subsidies agreement. That agreement as a provision, the text of that agreement, as a provision that it will enter into force once a certain number of, of, of member states uh, have approved of it. So if South Africa, uh, and that of course is still very early days, but if South Africa wants to be a party to that agreement, it will also have to go the Section 231 route. Okay. You're quite right. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Um, as I see there's a follow-up and uh, from uh, Honorable Dango. Yes, thank you very much, Chairperson. Chairperson, maybe I should funnel my my question down. I, I put it broadly initially. Say, for example, we have a most favoured nation agreement with the BRICS countries, we have it with Mercosur, we have it with the European Union. Do we extend that most favoured nation agreement provisions to the African Union. Does Egypt, for example, as a member of uh, of this uh, African agreement, extend that to a 23 kilometers their border to Saudi Arabia? 
or Spain as part of the Mediterranean countries extend that to Southern Europe or to Europe, the most favored nation agreement provisions within the within ACFA uh, to, to that. Um, and this is where my confusion comes in. Thank you. Thank you. Honorable Thomas. Yeah, uh, Honorable Chair, if I may respond to that yeah. by, by saying what the, the benefits that members, the state parties of the AFC FTA uh, are entitled to, those preferences, they only apply to the state parties. They only apply to the state parties. Now, if, to use the example uh, of Egypt, if Egypt has a let's say, an existing agreement with certain other countries in the Middle East. And that other agreement was concluded, let's say, some five years ago. And uh, it it has promised under, under that agreement that if in future it would conclude a new preferential trade agreement with other countries in the world, that it would automatically extend such benefits, um, sometimes called the regional MFN uh, activity. Uh, to let's say the Middle East, um, there are the following consequences. If Egypt is under a legal obligation, because of a prior agreement to do so, uh, it can do so. It can can extend those benefits. Let's 